Thank the Lord. I want to read from 1 Samuel chapter 30, beginning with verse 18. We launched a series this past Wednesday night on wholeness or recovery. I want to encourage all of you to be a part of this series. It will go on for a number of weeks on Wednesday night. I want to encourage you to be here on Wednesday night. But uh, today I'd like to preach towards that end uh, in a similar vein of what we talked about this past Wednesday night. 1 Samuel chapter 30. Verse 18, and David recovered all. David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking, there was nothing wanting to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters. God has put our church on a track this year. Our theme, of course, is Ascend, which is moving forward and upward at the same time. And today I want to preach an Ascend-based message. I want to title this just simply, The Ascent to Recovery. I believe God wants to do a work in this church and with our families. He is setting us up for that. He's already built a platform. I want us to open our minds. I would like for all of Grace Church to learn how to stop coping with things. I want to talk about that in a minute, but don't, don't settle. Don't settle. Take all that God has for you. Everything that God has for you, take it. Receive it. If it calls for lifestyle changes, that will only make you better. If it calls for an attitude adjustment, it'll only make you better. I feel a freedom and a liberty in the Holy Ghost here this morning. I like what I feel. Clap your hands one more time to Jesus. Thank the Lord. Everybody say thank God for the Word. Thank you for standing. Thank you for your worship and your attention. You may be seated. John Wesley Powell. John Wesley Powell. Powell has been pretty much forgotten. It used to be that every grade school kid in America knew about John Wesley Powell and his amazing courage to survive a journey that everyone told him was impossible to survive. As a matter of fact, a lot of people thought Powell was crazy. Thought he was nuts. As a matter of fact, he was wanting to pursue something that had never been done by anyone else. He wanted to go on an expedition. And everyone told him it was way too dangerous. Especially for a man that only had one arm. During the Civil War, Powell had lost his arm. When an enemy soldier shot him in his forearm, the wound left him, led to an amputation. But Powell never let his injury. Powell never allowed his injury to stop him from becoming what history now says is a national hero. He did not allow his hurt to stop him. Everybody get your head around that statement. 
Back in 1869, rather, conventional wisdom said that passage through the Grand Canyon on the Colorado River was impossible. The country surrounding the Grand Canyon oozed with legends of doomed expedition by others. No one had ever dared that stretch of river and came out alive. As a matter of fact, out of all the expeditions that had given it their best shot to go down the Colorado River that worms and snakes its way through the bottom of the Grand Canyon, there had never been one survivor. No one ever attempted this and survived. One army lieutenant who had explored the Colorado just on the southern side of the Grand Canyon believed that that powerful river was so treacherous that he's had this to say. The Colorado along the greater part of its lonely and majestic way shall be forever unvisited and undisturbed. But the one-armed explorer thought he could pull it off. So on May the 24th, 1869, Powell and a party of nine stepped into their boats to attempt the thousand-mile journey. Along the way, their party encountered numerous ambushes. They were ambushed by killer rapids. They were ambushed by waterfalls. They were ambushed by boulders the size of cabins. They were ambushed by the loss of boats, critical foodstuffs, and instruments for navigation. Yet 100 days later, 100 days later, Powell and five of his men emerged from two boats. The hope of their survival had been given up weeks before. They were suffering from exposure and near starvation, but they made it. Everybody said they made it. They made it. What happened to the other four men? On one had decided to turn back. The other three, after numerous disagreements with Powell, left the expedition. They hiked up to the rim of the canyon, only to be killed by Indians. Powell and his men rose up against the odds. They pushed through, and they made it. Everybody say they made it. Life and service to God is going to have many challenges for you to have to work through. Life and service to God is going to have many challenges for you to have to work through. And the longer I live, the more and more I'm coming to believe that there is something that burns in the heart of a child of God that helps him or her to press on through all the odds through everything that is plotted to be against them, the events of our life that want to discourage us and cause us to throw in the towel and quit. Grace Church must understand the armaments that have been afforded to us, a true revival of a heart of a man or woman has the capacity to awake those things even in the heart of those that are most distant from God. And that is happening this year in Grace Church, especially in the past several months. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, 
And he said, For though we walk in the flesh, we war not after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. What the devil has embezzled from the church, both individually and collectively, has robbed us of recovery or wholeness. And I'm here to challenge Grace Church today to go on a pursuit and with a determination and passion that I am going to take back those things that God has given to me. I am not going to surrender them. I am not going to settle for less. I am not going to settle with just coping for the status quo and the mundane. But I believe today God has empowered all of us to have and to possess what God has given us. The devil has plundered our joy. He's robbed us of good attitude. He's kidnapped our children who are caught up in a place of worldliness. And it's time for that to stop. He has pillaged our prayer. And he's mocked our worship. He's looted our peace. And we've accepted coping with life instead of being a conqueror in life. I want to lay down the gauntlet here this morning to Grace Church. I need for about five people to get behind me right now. It's time to pursue and take possession of the things that God has promised and the things that God has given. It belongs to us and it's time we take it back. Somebody clap your hands and shout, yeah! Praise God. And what we must understand is where oftentimes we capitalize on the events of our life. And we blame the devil for this and we blame the devil for that. But there's another side to this story. All of these things must be restored and will be restored to a church whose hope is not in itself, but whose hope is in another. And his name is Jesus. (laughs) Praise the Lord. The church must arise and pursue. The church was never intended to be stagnant and static and uh, uh, to be weakened. The church was never intended to be that. It is ever seeking to meet the challenge of its time. The church must be dynamic and pulsating with the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Praise the Lord. I want God to continue to move into this place today. We've had a great time of worship but the worship was not the climax. We are still building up to a point this morning, and I want somebody to leave this place today determined that I've accepted things in my life for years, and I'm not accepting that anymore. I'm going to pursue a relationship with God. I'm Our God can move mountains. I said our God can move mountains. And there's too many testimonies that will validate that statement. To get the setting of the story for which my text is in in 1 Samuel 30, to get the story that's leading up to that, one must understand that David 
the Old Testament David still had to deal with the onslaught of King Saul. King Saul, as you know, would not leave him alone. King Saul wanted him dead. And David, just because of this, had kind of reached the end of his rope. He actually had had fled to Philistine and uh, pretended to be crazy. And we find in the opening chapter of 1 Samuel 29 that David was in a place called Aphek. It was a place right in between his enemy Philistine and his enemy Saul. It was just kind of a place where he could gather and kind of get his feet back underneath him to the best of his ability before he pursued any kind of direction in his relationship with God. Aphek was about a three days journey from Ziklag, which is where David lived at the time. He was not in Ziklag. Perhaps he should have been there. But I want you to understand this morning that David had reached a point in his life that he was disoriented. He had been anointed king. He had killed Goliath. He killed the lion and the bear. He had done all of that. He had had the praise of Israel. It's what caused Saul to turn against him so badly. Saul had been chasing him like a man would chase a dog. Chased him through the hillside of Judea for now that's been going on a while. When the Philistines caught on to what David was doing, they probably should have killed him, but instead they chased him out. And David is at the end of his rope. <laughs> he could safely assume that everybody on this planet, on his known planet, was against him. Saul was against him. Saul's army was against him. David only had about 600 men that was really fighting for his side and for his cause. So the Philistines kicked him out. The nation of Israel was turning more and more against him. He had a hard time even going home because even those folks weren't on the same page with him. The man had nowhere to go. And he really didn't have any friends. He had no one to turn to. So he stayed in Aphek for a while and finally set out on a three-day journey back to Ziklag, that place of security, that place of rest, that place of hope, that place where David could kind of catch his breath in Ziklag. What David didn't know is while he had been in Aphek, the Amalekites, a bitter enemy of Saul, had been working destruction at the only safe place that David had in his life. He couldn't go anywhere else. Ziklag was the one place that David could go to be, feel safe, to feel comfortable, his two wives were with him. 
His children was the one place that was kind of his personal sanctuary, if you will. And now David gets word that his only safe place has been dismantled by one of the most complicated enemies that Israel had, probably other than the Philistines. The enemy had invaded his safe place. The enemy had crossed a line. I'm spending some time on this point because I want you to get it. There was a time, and I'm not going to go into the details of it, but when Sister Murph and I pastored in Youngstown, Ohio, there was a time when the devil came into my house and assaulted one of my children. It's a long story. But when that happened, Brother Ulmer, something rose up on the inside of me. You've crossed the line, buddy. You've invaded my safe place. And there's people sitting here today that it's like the enemy has invaded your safe place. And you have a choice to make. Are you going to settle for that? Are you going to try to cope with it? Or are you going to conquer it? The decision is up to you. And no one else can make that decision for you. There's moms and dads here today who have kids that are reeling. The world has called their name. Sin has beckoned them. They're barely surviving spiritually. Are you going to continue to settle for that? Or do you want to find a prayer closet somewhere and begin to do whatever it is that God wants you to do to get your kids back? I'll never forget, it's been a couple of years ago now, I suppose, that a mom, that I was worried about a young person. They were choosing that path of worldliness and sin. And I contacted this person's parents who attend another church. And I said, we need to meet. And the mom said, I can't. And it was over a frivolous appointment that didn't amount to a hill of beans in my opinion. And I thought to myself, if you're not worried about your kids, then why do I need to be worried about it? Of course, I didn't take that posture. Sister Murph especially intervened on behalf of the parent of that child, and we're doing everything we can. But I want to tell our moms and dads here today, just because your kids are in their late teens and early 20s don't mean you write them off and let them go. You never stop being a parent. doesn't matter to me if your kids are 50 years old. You're still their parent. And you're still obligated to pray for them on a consistent basis. I believe we still have some degree of responsibility and liability for our kids. And everybody said amen. And when the devil invades our family, I expect and I anticipate that moms and dads will do what Sister Murph and I have done for years. You get on your face somewhere before God and you refuse to settle For what the devil is doing to your kids, I'm preaching to somebody right now. David 
was doing his best with the Saul factor. David was doing his best with the Philistine factor. But when the Amalekites came into his safe place called Ziklag and literally kidnapped his wives and children, it didn't matter how discouraged he was. It didn't matter what Saul thought about him. It didn't matter how much the Philistines mocked and ridiculed him. The devil crossed a line. And I've, I've been here at Grace Church long enough to see a pattern. That moms and dads especially will see the devil cross a line and step into your home or into the life of your children. And we roll over. And because they're adults and have families of their own, we settle. And we learn to cope. And we learn to deal with backslidden, wayward children. But I'm here to say, my kids are mine. And when they were born, they were given to God. And that's where they're staying. I'm not preaching a pipe dream here this morning. I know it's easier said than done to win your kids back to God. But that don't mean you quit praying. That don't mean you give up. That don't mean you stop. That don't mean you quit having faith. I don't care where they are right now. The hand of God can still reach them. The hand of God can touch them. The hand of God can woo them. We've got to win. We've got to win this battle. If you'll remember, the Amalekites were those people who had badgered and provoked the children of Israel practically every step of the way when they left Egypt. This is hundreds of years before David came on the scene. These people hated the people of God. They badgered them. They provoked them. And finally God had had enough. And now that Israel had its first king and an army of people, he commanded Saul to destroy the Amalekites. Get rid of them. They are a blight to human race, if you will. Destroy them, all of them. And of course, Saul did not. He didn't do it. I'm being pastor this morning. And that's kind of my job. But there's moms and dads that have tolerated the Amalekites in your life, and now they're attacking your children. And I'm not sure you really see that coming as a parent. I would like to say here today, and I submit to you with all my heart and passion that I have on this subject, but there's moms and dads that have upbringing here today, you have a solid core of truth that wasn't and has not been necessarily passed on to your children. But somehow you think that your kids can survive the attack of an enemy like you did, and they can't because they don't necessarily have all those Christian Word of God-based qualities that you do. Does anybody hear me today? Y'all bear with me with my voice. I don't know what happened to it all of a sudden. But the Amalekites had badgered the people of God. 
And God commanded Saul to destroy them, get rid of them. He didn't. He allowed them to survive. The sad spiritual state of Saul, the state that he was living in, he refused to fulfill the entire purpose of God. He only obeyed part of what God had instructed him to do. Listen to pastor today. Partial obedience. Partial obedience is equivalent to full disobedience. And what Saul refused to deal with in his life became an issue in the life of someone else. Moms and dads, grandparents, please be cognizant of that fact. What you refuse to deal with in your life can very easily be passed on to your children for them to deal with it. It's best that you destroy it. There's dads here today. I would to God you'd take a hold of an altar somewhere or shirt yourself up in a prayer room and get over yourself. Get over the things that are bottled up on the inside of you. The hurts and the anguish of your past and childhood and all of that kind of stuff so you can be to your children what God expects you as a father to be. And I would say to our moms, please do the same thing. Find a place somewhere before God and get Give God the good, the bad, and the ugly part of you. And say, God, I want to be the best I can for my family. The principle that we all must realize is that our life does indeed affect those around us. A writer said one time that no man is an island unto himself. So now because of the Amalekites who had not been dealt with by Saul, now became David's problem to deal with. In his absence, they came and disrupted the lives of those in Ziklag. All of the wives of David and his men were taken. It was probably the lowest point in David's life. The world is against me. The Philistines hate me. Saul and his armies are chasing me. The story continues. David had 600 men. Of those, 200 were too weary to cross the brook Besor. He only had two-thirds of the small group that was with him that had any energy left themselves. So David allowed the 200 weary soldiers to stay behind. Listen to Pastor Grace Church. Notice the screen. Every church will have among its saints those who love, whose love for God burns high and their faith is real. But at times their strength becomes weakened and they, they become depressed in spirit. And more than anything, they need rest, not criticism. A lot of factors may have been involved in the weariness of David's men. They had been forced to march for three days back to Ziklag. Sometimes that pace is wearying. They had to deal with the grief of their loss at Ziklag. They lost their family. They didn't know where their wife was. They didn't know where their kids were. Perhaps even 
The force of a swollen brook at Besor was enough to dishearten them. But whatever the case may be, they were allowed to remain in a place of restoration and rest. The same characteristic has to be found in the church. And we must consider that there are those around us who need our encouragement and our support during times of weariness and battle. We will find that one of these days, when we all get to heaven, we may have helped someone else get there. Just allowing them to rest. Dave and Farrah were at our house a couple of weeks ago. And I'm working with them right now trying to figure out a time where they can, just the two of them, can take a weekend away somewhere and just rest. Just rest. There's others that are tired and fatigued. We need to let them rest. So David, at the lowest point of his life, and his 400 men beside him, pressed on and engaged the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 17, the Bible gives us a hint of this battle. The Bible said, Brother Almer, that David smote at them. I want to tell you, and this is what I'm feeling here today, I guess. It doesn't matter how tired you are and what the events are like in your life, how depressing and discouraging life can be. There's a line that the devil crosses. And I don't care how tired you are. I don't care how weak you are, Brother Ben. Something rises up on the inside. The Bible said that David smote them from twilight, from the moment the sun rose until the sun set the next day, the next day, two days. I'm tired. I'm grieving. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. But the devil has crossed the line. And I don't care how tired I am. Sometimes the battle requires more than just a day or two days. Sometimes a battle and the process of recovery takes a while. Let me remind you that a church is not built in a day. A man of God is not built in a day. A prayer warrior is not built in a day. A stress fracture in life may take more than a day to recover. Pentecost occurred after a tarrying time of some 7 to 14 days. Whatever the cost is, no matter what the obligation required, the church finds itself at a point where it must continue to move forward and reclaim what rightfully belongs to it. No matter how long it takes, I must be involved in the process. I must be willing to march forward until I'm in possession of what has been taken from me. And no matter how difficult it may seem, there is a God. There is a God who will help a man to recover and repossess what's taken from him. Michelle, are you on board this morning? She's living that right now. She's gotten weary and tired of what the devil has pillaged and pirated in her life, and she's taken it back. I could hardly contain myself when I watched her step out in the aisle this morning. Those hands raised to heaven. There was a determination. There was a passion that said, I don't care how weak I feel, how tired I feel, how discouraged I am. I'm tired. 
Lord, and the devil has crossed the line, and I'm going to take back. Hallelujah. Everybody clap your hands and shout, yeah. We feel sometimes like Esau that can never recover the birthright. You've sold out everything and you can't, you can't buy it back. Some of us feel like Judas Iscariot. And what we've betrayed, we will never be able to redeem. We feel like the rich young ruler who has bypassed the intersection of opportunity and we feel like we can't make a comeback. The enemy of our soul would cause us to think that we cannot retrace our steps, but we cannot believe anything the devil has to say. One of my most favorite scriptures in the Bible is Micah 7, 8, and I quote it here often. But there's three clauses he makes in that scripture. There's three words of, that he, he, three statements that he makes. He said, rejoice not against me, for when I fall and when I sit in darkness. Rejoice not against me when I fall and when I sit in darkness. All of us from time to time fail. All of us from time to time sit in darkness. That's when you're disoriented. That's when you're confused. And you don't know which way to go and you don't know what to do. The challenge is to get back up again. Rejoice not against me, O oh mine enemy. For when I fall, I'll rise again. I know a pastor today, I'm not going to call his name. But he had a very strong and entrenched family in his church. It rose up against him. They wanted to control his church. They wanted to control him. As a matter of fact, they had control about the last 14 pastors that preceded him. He called me and told me what was going on in his church. You know what I said to him? I wished I could come and just tell your, that church family in person that you don't know who you're messing with now. You run all the other ones off, but you don't know who you're messing with now. You've got Brother Hard-Headed with a capital H. And he ain't leaving. And he didn't. He was able to root this very controlling family who was against growth and progression. He rooted them out. And his church has exploded in revival and growth. And I thank God for that. Sometimes when you fall, you just have to rise again. When you sit in darkness, you have to be assured that the presence of God is going to be a light around you. Ziklag, David's safe place, had been looted and destroyed. But the Bible said, Brother Ulmer, when David couldn't get it from another person, nobody, he didn't have a pastor, a priest, or nobody to call. He didn't have anybody to text. He didn't have anybody to get on Facebook with. He couldn't get on Twitter. He couldn't call the, his church buddy. He couldn't call nobody. Sister Dean Dykes, the Bible said, he encouraged himself. Some of you aren't hearing me today. 
We have defaulted. We have defaulted to get strength and support and passion and courage from our fellow man. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there's times, Brother Billy, that you dig your heels in the dirt and you determine, come hell or high water, I'm not moving. I'm not going anywhere. This is mine. And it stops here. My God, I feel the Holy Ghost. Praise God. And David ended up recovering in a couple of days what he had lost over a period of months and even perhaps years. Melanie, he just didn't go back to Ziklag and recover his family. There was something happened to him, buddy. That was a victory he needed to win. That was a fight he had to fight and a fight he had to win. Nobody could do that for him. And I'm persuaded, and I love the story of David and Ziklag. Brother Olmer, I'm sure you do too. But something happened to that man when he went into that city. And this is a moment where you don't need encouragement from anybody else. I don't have to tell me, Brother Ben. I don't have to have anybody tell me what I need to do now. I know what I need to do. I'm going to take two-thirds of my, of my firepower. I'm going to take two-thirds. Y'all need to hear that, of my firepower. I don't have all of my staff. I don't have everybody up and running. I don't have everybody in good shape. But the devil has crossed the line, buddy. And I'm going to take what me and I have, and I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving the Amalekites until I've got back what belongs to me. And when you win a victory like that, When you win a victory like that, it does something to you, man. The pastor didn't do this. The church prayer warrior didn't do this. By the help of God, I rose up in the hour of crises, and I did it. I did it. I took my family back. I got what belongs to me. Oh, my. Oh, my. Praise God. And suddenly, difficulties are left in the dust. Tears of defeat suddenly turn into songs of victory. Trouble suddenly turns into the spiritual exercise that builds up spiritual resistance. Apostolic quest, purpose, and passion may have been robbed from some of us. But we must recover those things which have been lost. It's time to rise to the full potential that God has invested in us. It's amazing to me that David refused to lift a hand against Saul. But, buddy, the Amalekites took them out, man. I ain't playing. I ain't messing around with you guys. I may be understaffed and outarmed, but you don't understand my passion. You don't understand my desire. And I'm not leaving here today empty-handed. All right. Set up straight and listen with both ears. Notice the screen. Some things we may have to put up with from the hand of a brother. 
All of us has a Saul in our life. You can't kill him. And you can't do a thing with him. Huh? How about that ex-spouse? You can't kill him. And you can't do a thing with them. They're just there. There's some things, I could go on to that point, but you got the point. There's some things we may have to put up with from the hand of a brother, but we never have to submit to the antics and wicked influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if we give in to it, that's our choice. If we conquer it, that's our choice. God is a recoverer. He is a recoverer. Not recover. Recoverer. God is a restorer. God is a builder. I don't know why, but it's made an indelible impression on me. The time that we kept Brennan when he was about that high. And Michelle dropped him off. And he had a VHS tape with a little kid movie on it. And it was called Bob the Builder. I can still hear that sound in my head. You remember it? Oh, my. You need to well, go find that somewhere on Google or Amazon. You've got to watch Bob the Builder, Brennan. You watched it 5,000 times at my house that day. <laughs> but I could still hear that little animated voice. Can we do it? my God. Oh my. God is a recoverer, a restorer, a rebuilder. Can we do it with the help of God? I can do all things through Christ Jesus, for with men things are impossible, but with God nothing is impossible. Peter's epistle written by him reveals to us his ascent to recovery. The demoniac of Gadara was void of clothing, void of a sound mind, void of morals. The devil had seemingly destroyed and wasted this man, but Jesus. Jesus had his disciples row a boat up to his little shoreline, and Jesus started working for this man. And he erased his past and completely recreated him. The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, had been pillaged, pirated, and wasted by illicit relationships. Five husbands, and one of them was that she was with now was not her husband, and all of the life had been drained out of her. Excuse this crude illustration, but she was like a piece of gum that all the sweetness had been chewed out of and spit out into the dirt. There was nothing left until Jesus, who loved her most, helped her to recover. She was sordid, tainted, of questionable reputation. And all of these details forced her to go to a well in the middle of the day. But when Jesus got through to her, and when Jesus got through with her, her morality, her chastity, her purity had been restored to her. And it was such a drastic change in her that by the time Philip got to Samaria months and even years later, the Bible said in Acts chapter 8 that the whole entire city turned to God because of her. 
what God determines to take, he gets. He took the keys of death, hell, and the grave. Jesus always shows up at the service with the keys. He is the recoverer of all things. Job lost all, but the word declares that in spite of all of this, he fell down in worship. Then the boils appeared, and then the three friends came and stared at him for seven days in dead silence. And then the ever-encroaching question came out of Job's mouth, I don't know where God is. But you see, that's not the issue. Because God knew where Job was. God, I feel the Holy Ghost right now. Job ultimately testified, In my flesh I shall see God. When purpose, passion, and vision are gone, there's still a God who can restore it all. I want to plead with somebody today, Take a chance! Get active again with your faith. It's time to recover pursue and overtake it's time for you to recover your worship your commitment your sense of holiness your devotion to prayer your hunger for the word of god your desire to reach lost men and women it's time to recover pursue and overtake moses made it up to 120 years and his eyes the bible said did not dim how god prophesied that the latter house shall be greater than the former house I believe local churches in the end time will exceed the exploits of the early church. The wise man said in Ecclesiastes 7 and 8, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Let me introduce to you today, as I put out the landing gear of this message, God's day starts at night. Genesis 1. The evening and the morning were the first day. Not the day and the night, but the night and the day. God starts his most glorious and profound work in the dark. When you can't see him. You know, the greatest work of the anchor of a ship is where you can't see it. When it's pulled up on the side and you sit on the side, but it ain't doing one blessed thing. But buddy, when you need that ship to get stable, you drop that anchor. And it's working with everything it's got to hold that boat steady. And you can't ever see it. It's kind of the way God is. Do you know that the best wine is always served last? The word perilous is used one time in the Scripture. It speaks of perilous times, but there's a spirit that overcomes that. The day is dangerous, but the spirit is being poured out. So some would say, Pastor, I'm wiped out. I went around an emotional curve, and I've lost control. I've shattered myself. I'm almost ashamed to walk back into the church and lift my head. My failure, my mistakes have been too great. I've prayed through about... Ten too many times, and I've worn out the saints of God time and time again. Their faith, their prayers have taken me towards God too many times. I've lost all sense of credibility. Let me introduce you to another biblical fact. The devil is a liar. And all of that is a lie. He's a liar. He's a sifter. He's a destroyer. But God is a rebuilder and a restorer. If Samson could take a jawbone, if Shamgar could take an ox goat, if Gideon could pick up a picture, then pick your faith up along with your dreams and your passion. And may I say to you today, rear back and knock the daylights out of the devil. You've crossed the line, and 
it stops here. You say, well, I don't have much to fight with. What did David kill Goliath with? He didn't show up with a cannon. I'm sure he would have liked to. It would have been nice if he had had, well, they call that a RPG, a rocket-propelled grenade. You know, back in those days, when you wanted to defeat your enemy, you had to get close to that rascal. You couldn't fight him from a distance. You know, we use drones now and we shoot them out of the sky or shoot them from the sky. They didn't do that back then. You had to smell his breath, man, before you could wax him. I don't know how far David was, but he was close enough that Goliath could get to him. And he took what he had, and he took what he knew how to fight with. And if prayer's all you got, if you think prayer's all I've got, let me introduce you. Prayer's all you need. Because one stone worth of prayer can obliterate your enemy a whole lot more than a bazooka can. You read at the end of Job's story, the latter end was greater than the former. You know, Romans 4, if you'll stand with me this morning, Romans 4 speaks of Abraham. One writer writes that he did not stagger at the promise of God. Really? Now, this is New Testament interpretation of Abraham's walk with God. Get situated in your shoes if you're wearing them. Some of you don't wear shoes in church. kind of wigs me out a little bit. Anyway, it's your business. I asked one of our kids Wednesday night, are you standing on holy ground? Where's your shoes, son? Running around here barefooted. Anyway. Romans 4 speaks of Abraham. One writer said he didn't stagger the promise of God. And this implies that he had strong faith. He even shows up in Hebrews chapter 11 in the roll call of faith heroes. And we understand that God had a plan for Abraham's life. However, when you actually read the account of Abraham's life in Genesis, it wasn't so pretty. The New Testament was nice. Father of faith. You can judge for yourself, but maybe Abraham quit praying for Sodom a little too quick. Got down to five and stopped. What happened to one? He lied about his wife Sarah. He had a son that was born out of doubt and discouragement named Ishmael. But in spite of Abraham's failures, God was still willing to consider him a great man with great faith. How does he see you? You see the failure, but God sees the fact that you're still here. God was willing to say that he was a man of great faith. And I have a feeling, Michelle, that God oftentimes notices more value in us than we do. 
God sees things that we don't see. And you can say what you want to about church people, but those that come every Sunday, in spite of their failures, Brother James, God looks at them as people of faith and great faith at that. The same principle was with Peter. His mom and daddy named him coward, spineless, weak, unstable, inconsistent. But Jesus hung around with him for a few days and said, I'm going to change your name to a rock. I see nothing but solid content in you and his parents are going, huh? God believes in us and has faith in us far more than we do. If he didn't, he wouldn't have paid the price that he paid for our soul. And there's people here today that I'm encouraging you today to square your shoulders and put your chin in the air and declare that I'm a child of God and I'm not going down this easy. For if God be for us, who can be against us? There's people here today that are strong and mighty, and you probably don't get this message, but there's others that it's resonating with. God hasn't given up on you, and your life isn't over. As they begin to sing softly, I want to open the front of this building to everybody to come. I want, as we do, this is our custom. Pastor, staff, I want you to help me this morning. If there's people here today that are heavy with discouragement and despair, it's time to take a mountain climb to recovery. Life is not going to be better with you going down. Life only gets better when you start going up. Life don't get better by getting worse. Life gets better by getting better. It's time to take the bull, the proverbial bull by the horns and say, I'm not going to stay the same. I'm not going to live my life in the status quo and I'm not going to accept defeat. I'm going to win. I'm going to fight and I'm going to win. Rejoice not against me, O oh my enemy. When I fall, I'll rise again. I'm going to ask everybody in the building to reach heavenward right now. Everybody reach heavenward right now. Would you lift your hands heavenward right now? And while you're doing that, I'm going to ask somebody to open your heart and mind right now and accept the challenge that I am going to be what God wants me to be. I'm going to press through. And what the devil, the sin, and the sin in the world has taken from me, I'm going to take it back. The Bible said the aim and mission of Jesus was to seek and to save that which was lost. Come on, somebody, get together with me right now.